0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hi everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History. Once a week, we dive back through the memory banks, through the archive. That's what Team History Hit do. We're all history graduates here. So we love going into archives. We blow the dust off the filing cabinet. We root through it. God, most of the team that worked for me wouldn't even know what a filing cabinet was. now. There's a thought. Anyway, we do that, and we pull out a back episode of the podcast. And this week, we thought we'd go for an interview with a very brilliant David Baddiel. He's a national treasure here in the UK. Everyone knows who he is. Comedian, author, broadcaster. He's had a number one hit when I was young. The hot summer of 96, who can forget? England's run to the semi-final of Euro 96. On home territory, in our own stadia. And David Baddiel's song, Three Lions was the soundtrack of that summer. I was young. My whole life was ahead of me. The weather was warm. It was an innocent time where we could enjoy warm summers. Before, it was obvious that those warm summers were a product of a climate crisis that threatened to extinguish life on earth. And I was looking forward to years of excitement and opportunity. Here I am, age 42, years later, talking into my phone in a strange way, an empty room. Anyway, Dave Baddiel came on the podcast a couple of years back. He was absolutely brilliant. He is on everybody's lips at the moment. He's in everyone's thoughts because David Baddiel has just published a new book. It is called Jews Don't Count. And it's a remarkable contribution to the debate around anti-Semitism identity here in the UK at the moment. The reason I put this podcast in is you can see a lot of his thinking. You could see he was ruminating on these subjects a couple of years ago when we talked and he ended up writing a book. And it's very brilliant. So well done him. If you want to go and listen to other back episodes of this podcast, you can do so at historyhit.tv. A lot of people ask me what historyhit.tv is, and I tell them it's like Netflix for history. It is a digital history channel where you get the world's best history documentaries. We're making new ones all the time, but there's also ones that we've licensed, showcasing the best of the past. And you also get all podcasts, my podcast, other podcasts that we produce, all without ads on them. It's a very exciting proposition, the old historyhit.tv. We are, in the moment, in the middle of producing a couple of new documentaries. The people are going to like them. They're big. They're exciting. And there's lots of new and interesting material about well-known subjects. I think you're going to really fire up the old history subscribers. So thank you very much to everyone subscribing. If you're not subscribing, please go and check it out, historyat.tv. And don't forget, everyone, if you want to come and watch me talking to people and recording episodes of this podcast in the flesh, live, for real, you can go to historyat.com. Please go and check. That out in the meantime everyone it was great to have dave deal on the podcast enjoy David, deal as as ever. When two people meet in this age, we start talking about Trump. So let's 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 get let's get the we'll do the podcast in a minute, but let's keep the conversation well, going. It, it's I'm,
1: history. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's happening now, but it is history. And we were just chatting uh, before the microphones were turned on about Donald, as one has to. Um, and well, because it was you, uh, I started positing my theory that. Uh, if you're in the discussion, is Donald Trump a fascist uh, after you've had all the discussions about what fascism actually is or what fascism means now uh, and how you know he, there is a cult of leader around him, if, if not a coherent political agenda, you think which fascist and he's not really Hitler, is he um, and he's not really Franco um, and I personally think Stalin's basically a fascist just on the left. He doesn't sort of have the self-discipline of all that. But what he is like, I think, is Mussolini. Uh, From what I know about Mussolini, you'll know more about Mussolini. And I've noticed that when Trump does a speech or is is any kind of public uh, thing, his sort of resting face, not his bitchy resting face, I don't even know what that is. I remember that being a thing about a year ago. But his sort of face that he does in between saying stuff. So he'll say is incredibly Mussolini-like. He'll do a thing, he'll say a thing, and then he'll look around, especially at the rallies, with a kind of like grim lip out looking around sort of stern face and Mussolini did that and I wonder if he nicked it from Mussolini I mean one hardly knows with Donald whether he's ever read a book or watched any history or whatever but it's really similar to to Mussolini Uh, and it's like a a strange rhetorical slightly comedy technique I mean that's the other thing about Donald which makes him like Mussolini Mussolini is without doubt the funniest fascist (laughs) isn't he I mean you know they're all they're all Quite funny. I think this is quite an important thing. I I think until Donald Trump emerged, I was fairly convinced that the reason why we couldn't really have that kind of leader again in in the Western world was because of comedy. Because I think that with modern comic sensibilities, you can't have Hitler because he is ridiculous. I mean, he's totally absurd. It doesn't... I don't want to get into cliches about the German sense of humour, but... The truth is that almost everyone else then, including Charlie Chaplin and, of course, the British cartoon cartoonist, realised that this bloke with this absurd moustache and absurd haircut and shoutiness was a clown at some level and there was something innately ridiculous about him, uh, as indeed there is certainly about, about Mussolini. Um, but there is about Donald Trump as well. I mean, he's sort of like, without knowing it, I think a brilliant comedian. I don't know if you ever saw... There was a GIF going around about two years ago of him barging through at the G9 conference, oh, various leaders, uh, without sort of noticing that uh, he had sort of like was upsetting other people's personal space. But the brilliant moment for me was he barges through, he gets to stand in front of them, and then he looks around with the Mussolini face and does up his yeah. jacket. And if that was Oliver Hardy, I would think, well, once again, a brilliant example of the pompous man embodied in a cloudish way. But of course, Donald isn't doing that, but he is it anyway.
0: But you're, but you're right about the funny thing. And, but actually, at the time, the New York Times famously wrote Hitler off saying, this man's clearly absurd. And I, yeah. I always think
1: that... Oh, no, the it's po- a big problem not spotting that. Yeah. Yes, not spotting that but we're bad the absurd at spotting. is not noticed by quite a lot of people.
0: But also, we, we, it, I think it's like religion and it's like baby talk. You know, stuff that's very intimate and special to us. But the minute you see it in, in somebody else, you think it's absurd. You go, I'm, I'm Christian. It makes absolute sense. But my, yes. those Sikhs are completely insane. All the stuff they believe. And I yes. think our politicians... Other people's politicians are so absurd. I mean, and yet, and yet, to us, you know, Nigel Farage and, and Boris Johnson—no, they are you, absurd. Though. Well, I agree, but the people in Britain obviously don't. You know, <laughs> there are people who clearly don't think yeah. yeah. it. Whereas most well, well, well,
1: Americans, you see Nigel Farage, they see a sort of. No, um, but here is an interesting thing I hadn't thought before. I think for a long time politicians were pretty grey uh, and not absurd, um, and I think that they were during you know the 30s, and obviously those people during the war. There was a ridiculousness to them. But part of ridiculousness is largeness, mm. you know, is cartoonishness, is, is grotesqueness. And that has a very wide reach. And if 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 you are cartoonish and grotesque, then some people will not spot that. All they will notice is the largeness of it. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. That it's very memorable to be like Hitler. It's not so memorable to be like Neville Chamberlain or John Major. So there is a sense in which just what I'm calling ridiculousness for other people will just translate as very big in your imagination and your memory and your ability to apprehend who this person is. So what I would say is that after the war, that sort of went away for a bit, when people were perhaps frightened of, of those kind of people. But then I think that now that we have a 24-hour media and people can be on it all the time, and you can see politicians all the time and hear them, the ones who we remember and the ones who rise to the top are the ones who can snag your imagination. So therefore... The ridiculous ones. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I do. It's much easier to remember Boris Johnson or Nigel Farage, what they talk like, what they look like, than it is, I can't even remember, but, <laughs> I don't know, someone, you know... David in, Miliband. David Miliband, exactly.
0: I think you're... I mean, I, if I look back at the 90s, which is my sort of formative years, when, of course, the hot summer of 1996, when your song was at number one, it was just the best thing ever. This is the kind of history I wanted <laughs> yeah, to Yeah, I mean, this is just, I mean, that's, that's you know, uh, it's such a... a but... The politicians. It was clear. You got know, Bob Dole and Tony Blair and John Major and these people on both sides. And I remember feeling as a young person, this system was ripe for disruption. I mean, it was so absurd. You Remember the sound bites. They never said anything. Mm. And, and clearly, we are now just in another that that wheel has turned. As you say, there was a bit in the '30s. Then everyone got a bit worried about larger mm. than life, charismatic leadership. Yes. So we went for quite quite you know the, the, those, that sort of line of British prime ministers, for example. And actually, the American presidents were quite low
1: key. And, Pretty low key. Gerald Ford. Yeah, exactly. I mean, unbelievably yeah, yeah, kind yeah, of and. and bland and, type of person you know Eisenhower all those guys so and then and it then, changes with Reagan and Thatcher yeah actually. yes you're right I suppose it does with them I mean and, they're quite a good example If you, I think the example is spitting image you know, like the reason that spitting image can exist I mean it doesn't exist anymore I actually should do obviously now but the more a politician can be made into right. that kind of puppet That's the more one. we're in that world so spitting
0: image we? was impossible without Margaret Thatcher
1: Yes, to some extent I would yeah. agree, and Reagan and, and all the rest of it. So it's not true, of course, that it's been uh, just a, you know, all bland and then there's Trump and blah, 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 because we had Reagan and, and Thatcher. Thatcher in particular, I think, is a very good example of someone who at one level is totally absurd and for other people is just incredibly clear and memorable and you know, easy to process, you know what I mean? Yeah. We know what she is because you know, she's much easier to remember than Jim Callahan yeah. at some level. But uh, where is this getting us? Where well, is getting us? Well, I mean,
0: it's getting us. You know, just, we're, we're talking about. I mean, one of the things I think. You, you know, you're you're, a, you're you've got a great passion for Second World War for, for your own reasons and family reasons all sorts of reasons. I, I think it's fascinating at the moment that the people with an interest in the Second World War are divided into two kind of camps. There are those historians who go. Don't be so stupid, people. You know the Godwin's law. Everyone's saying it's mm. like the rise of the fire. Honestly, mm. it's nothing like nineteen thirties. put yourself together. Yeah. And then there's people saying, "Well, hang on. The whole surely the whole point in nineteen thirties is the vigilance thing. We all mm. spent our childhood and go vigilance. Never again. Remember, mm. remember. Well, then isn't this what? When these alarm bells start to ring, albeit absolutely on a on a, a smaller, hopefully at the moment quite quieter scale. We're not mm. seeing you know, the march
1: of dictatorship like we did in the 30s. But we should be quite alert to those Mm. things, those trends. I mean, where do you come down on that? Well, it's complicated, I think. I have a complicated attitude to all that because I agree with Godwin's law uh, that there's an incredible ease in argument to invoking the Nazis uh, as a way of crushing all arguments and and, and over-exaggerating things. However, I've noticed that when, as I uh, do more and more, and, and this slightly... Turns the argument towards what you're saying. When I find myself more and more attacking anti-Semites or responding to anti-Semites on Twitter, I will sometimes invoke the Nazis in doing that, and then be accused of, of using Godwin's law. And I have to say, no, no. When I'm talking about anti-Semitism, yeah. when I'm talking about people who think that Jews should be, you know, eradicated from culture or, uh, you know, ex- 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 whatever the word is, exorcised, uh, or, or forced to, to emigrate from Europe or whatever, then I'm not, it's not Godwin's law anymore. Yeah. This is Nazi belief, so it's okay to talk about where this leads to. You know, It's when you're talking about, I don't know, uh, arguing about the rules of squash, and next you know, you're saying yeah. you're like a Nazi, that's Godwin's law. You know what I mean? Um, so, but uh, in terms of that particular vigilance, which is a particular aspect of what you're talking about, there is no question that the technology, really, that we live with now has uh, changed the discourse so that if the... I know I'm going to have to do something visual now. I'm sorry about the distance, But if the p- parameters of political discourse were this, and I'm holding my arms up uh, and my hands up, my palms fairly close together with this in the, recent, in the recent past, they're now this, and I'm moving my hands further apart. And so things that you would not really hear of at all in normal discourse, like, say, Holocaust denial now you hear that all the time as like, a, a, you know, something which is normalized by the fact that we have a technology, which means that those people who believe that can be mobilized and can have their own beliefs confirmed by other people. And it can be reified, it can become a real proper thing. Whereas before, it was just something you didn't really hear about. So I think there is there is definitely a truth in the fact that I mean, I, I mean, I just just happens to me, I don't know how much these people actually present a threat in the way that they would in the 1930s. But I do spend a lot of my time, and only, yes, only today in The Times, Hugo Rifkin, who, who I know, who's a journalist, writes a piece about how he got into a long, 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 long discussion with a uh, a sort of, one of these people who, I said in my last stand up show that conspiracy theory, which is very prevalent now, is how idiots get to feel like intellectuals. Uh, and so there are two types, really, of sort of Nazi, for want of a better word, online or on, which are the idiot ones, I mean, the complete idiot ones, the ones who are just, you know, shouting and screaming, whatever. And then these people who consider themselves the philosophers and thinkers of that ideology. And one of them was a guy called, I think it's called Evan McLaren. And he runs something called, I think it's called something like some posh name, like the National Policy Institute yeah. in America, something like that. And he has a belief called identitarianism. Have you heard of this? I did see
0: it on Twitter during the span. Yeah, identitarianism.
1: And he uses phrases like ethno-nationalism. And therefore, this language is the same thing, really. It's how idiots get to feel like intellectuals. But Hugo ended up in a very, very long... In his own, restrained as he could be, discussion with this guy about his beliefs, and specifically about how you different from the Nazis, and this guy was sort of saying, "Well, we're very different because we don't believe in the repossession of Danzig." It was oh stuff God. like that, you know. Uh, and I, I don't know what your parameters are for swearing, but after about. Really, what would be considered ten pages of discussion between these two guys? Uh, I said, uh, "Hugo, have you tried this? Fuck off, Evan, you idiotic Nazi cunt!" <laughs> and that got retweeted about three thousand times, uh, and obviously some complaints and all the rest of it. Uh, but I do think that what it proves is is that there is a similarity to the thirties in the sense that there is clearly those people out there; they are able to reach each other and mobilize in ways that they couldn't do before. Which is also true of the far left, of course. Uh, and now we're seeing what also happened in the 30s, which is a sort of intellectual intelligentsia coalescence around it. So that, of course, Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot are sort of intellectuals of the far right in the 20s and 30s. Um, Wyndham Lewis, you know, people like that. And there's a sort of element of that with people like, not quite the same, but people like Evan McLaren.
0: Does, does, does that resonate? Are you particularly aware of that because of your, your family's history?
1: Well, there's no... I mean, again, if you actually read the thing with Hugo, um, the emotional thing that's actually going on is he's doing his best. He's made a decision. Go and have a look at it. If you can, if you can see it, if you Google Hugo Rifkin's Twitter account, you'll see, you'll see this. And it went viral. Um, he brings up, every so often, members of his family who have been murdered. Um, I think his family actually came to Britain in 1896. But nonetheless, they had relatives in Europe who were murdered. And actually, he also brings up... Uh, other relatives who were murdered by Stalin, because this guy, in a veiled way, which he immediately picks up on, accuses Jews of being Bolsheviks uh, and therefore responsible for the war. I think think is what he's saying. Yeah, all the old classics. And he points out, well, I'm not on that team either because this other relative was killed by Stalin, of course, because Jews are always killed by either side. Um, So it's always there when you're having these arguments. There's always a sense in which this is an argument, but for me, it's a very clear emotional narrative uh, involving... People in my family, in my particular case, it's not 1896. Uh, My grandparents came here in 1939, three weeks before the war broke out, with my mother. My mother is a refugee, uh, was a refugee, she died two years ago. Um, And she was brought here as a three-month-old baby. Um, And they just got out. I mean, you know, really. Where from? Uh, well, originally they were from Königsberg, which is now called Kaliningrad. Uh, I did Who Do You Think You Are in the first series, and uh, I was the Jew. They always have one uh, on Who Do You Think You Are in the first series. Uh, and Kaliningrad is now part of Russia. It's Putin's
0: come- mother's from there or something, isn't it? Oh, is that, she? That's,
1: yeah, that's why he wants to... Well, it's such a weird place, you know, because yeah. in 1945, after the beautiful... Immanuel Kant Town, University Town of Königsberg, had been razed to the ground, once by the Germans and then by the Americans. Uh, it was rebuilt as a kind of weird little province by Soviet Union, and they bust in all these Russians so that, and tried to eradicate any German sort of culture that there, was there at all. Even in the 60s, they were still blowing up German churches in in Kaliningrad. And so it's a very horrible place, to be honest. And it's also, here's the really weird thing, is when I was there a few years ago filming this, quite a while, while ago now, I became aware that there's a kind of nationalist movement, a separatist movement within Kaliningrad because it's sort of, it's in a weird part yes, of, to, it's of Russia. It's connected to the rest of Russia, It's it? to the Baltic Sea uh, and it's strategically very important hmm. over the years. But I thought, it's a separatist movement for essentially a place that began in 1945. You know, who, what, what history is that that you're clinging on to? Uh, but it's a very, it's a strange place. Anyway, my grandparents were well, from there, my grandmother was actually from Danzig, was from Gdansk, but she married uh, my grandfather, Ernst Fabian, who lived in Königsberg. They were very, very wealthy. They owned a brick factory. They were sort of Jewish, semi-aristocratic family. Abrah- I think Abraham Abramomsky, Abramomsky and Fabian. Anyway, they had a massive construction firm. I have seen the brick factory as it is now. I mean a few stumps in a terrible, horrible field at the back end of the arse end of the Soviet Union. It's still there. Um, and they lost everything. Obviously, it was all taken away by the Nazis over quite a long period of time with different laws and different whatevers. Uh, by the end, they had none of this money uh, and various members of their family were already in camps. My great-uncle was in the Warsaw Ghetto, by you know. Uh, and what actually happened was, was my grandfather... Um, apparently, the British government it's not really known this. If you weren't Kinder transported, or you weren't a person of note, like a Nobel Prize winner or whatever, what you had to do was show a thousand pounds in a British bank account to get any chance of residency in Britain, uh, asylum or whatever. And he didn't have any money, so but he did have some friends uh, who had already gone to Britain, and so they deposited little bits of money, twenty quid, thirty quid, whatever, and he managed to get a thousand pounds with three weeks to go before the war broke out. He did have the papers, although that came and went. My grandfather was actually in a concentration camp, a pre-war concentration camp after Kristallnacht. Got out of there and then said, we've really got got to leave. Uh, And then they managed to get out. And my mother was, she used to tell me, uh, on the... Whatever the bit, but the train is where the baggage is. What do you call that bit? Luggage the, rack. Luggage rack. Thank you. My mother, my mother, was on the luggage rack on the train from Hamburg or wherever. However they came, they came down to Hamburg and then uh, up into you know through France and ended up you know with a bunch of people in wherever escaping Jews were kept. I think somewhere in Whitechapel they ended up for a long time in a sort of hostel there and then settled in Cambridge. And then my grandfather was interned on the Isle of Man in June 1940. And I've written a novel about that, which again, a a secret part or not very well known part of British history, which is that in 1940, after the fall of Holland and France, there was great panic in this country. A little bit like there sometimes is now about migrants and, you know, about the sense that who are all these people doing here. But during the war, there was a, a sense as far as I can make out that, well, the progress of the Germans through Europe can't just be about the Blitzkrieg. There must be fifth columnists in all these countries who are destabilizing the country, and that's probably happening here. And people looked around the Daily Express and the Daily Mail and said, well, I'll tell you who it probably is, all these Germans that we seem to have taken <laughs> in, right? Because the government, of course, was suppressing information about atrocities already happening in Eastern Europe. The Ministry of Information was suppressing that because they didn't want the British people to think we're only fighting this war on behalf of the Jews. This is what my novel is about. Uh, part of it is set on the internment camps that were set up on the Isle of Man. Part of it is set in the Ministry of Information. Um, and so... Under pressure from the tabloids, in June 1940, Churchill just said, collar the lot, quite a famous phrase, it was a headline. And by that he meant, let's just arrest and intern every German presently in Britain, 98% of whom were Jewish refugees, and therefore not supporters of the current German state. So that's how ridiculous it was. Anyway, they were all interned on the Isle of Man. How long for? Well, my grandfather was there for 18 months. Here's the the brilliant thing. (laughs) He loved it there. He absolutely loved it there, as did most people, because this is what happened. It's a combination of, I think, a very fantastic British trait and a very fantastic Jewish trait, which is that, unlike similar places in Japan or whatever, um, these internment camps... All the British did. There's a sort of laziness which I sort of love to the to Britain. I think, uh, and they're quite. That's one reason why we've never had, I think, a, a fascist culture or proper dictatorship in Britain, or even really a violent revolution. People sort of can't be bothered <laughs> in this country. So these were not extreme camps. They requisitioned the seafront in Douglas, other places, chucked out anyone who was in the B and Bs at the time which were not really running as businesses anyway because it was the war, put barbed wire around the streets and then just put the Jews in there and left them to their own devices. And of course, the Jews, within seconds, have made it into Vienna. So within three weeks... There's a university yeah. on the Isle of Man. There are cafes. There are lectures. You know, and I have a quote at the top of The, uh, of the Secret Purpose my novel about this from a historian whose name I tragically can't remember. But which says that the center of European intellectual and social life in 1941 is Douglas. <laughs> and that's true because partly because although there were people like my grandfather, there were also and it was easier to get out of Germany. In this case, there were, I think, six Nobel Prize winners on the Isle of Man, the Amadeus Quartet are on the Isle of Man, Kurt Schwitters, a great artist, is on the Isle of Man, Nicholas Pevner. I mean, these incredible people are all there, and they think, well, okay, let's have an intellectual, interesting time here. So my grandfather, I know, was sort of like, oh, it's brilliant here. was <laughs> a little bit disappointed when he was released. Sent back to the
0: hostel in the East
1: End. Well, no, he went back to Cambridge by then. Oh, no, he, I mean, there were other issues which were problematic because, you know, he, my mum was born. So he you know, didn't see his baby for, for nearly two years. Um, and I think, I think just what really happened was that part of it wasn't too bad. Uh, what was bad and my grandfather was in and out of uh, a mental hospital after the second world war with clinical depression was his whole family had been murdered of course so uh apart from his immediate family uh, but brothers and sisters and cousins and all that had all been murdered so that when that when that became clear to him after the war he became intensely depressed when you've got pictures of people you know were mm. killed when you hear a holocaust denial mm. how does that feel mm. it's very it's complicated i mean that novel, sorry to bang on about it, I'm not trying Don't to make, plug no, that no, novel, but that do. novel, that name, that but novel make sure ends... Make everyone
0: knows the name of the novel. What's the name it's of the novel?
1: The Secret Purposes. The Secret Purposes. And, and it's, it is about the internment of Jewish-German refugees on the Isle of Man, but it ends with the main character, who's based on my grandfather, doing something he never did, which is going on a day trip to Auschwitz, which I did with the Holocaust Educational Trust um, some years before I wrote that novel. Um, and it becomes, towards the end, sort of about the credulity of the fact that this thing, this extraordinary thing, of which there is an incredible amount of evidence, is being denied, uh, and how even if you lived under a sort of shadow version of it, so you were interned on the Isle of Man, which was not being in Auschwitz, nonetheless, you know, it's the thing that has to be done at all costs is resisting the idea that that the thing itself did not happen. Um, and I don't know. As I get older, I get more and more angry about it. It's the truth. It's an interesting because there is the straightforward emotional reason to do it with my family, but I'm very obsessed with the truth anyway. My, my show, My Family, not the sitcom that I'm about to tour, is about my family and does have some stuff in it about my mum. For example, a, lot, a very important feature of the show is something not very well known and that I only had a sort of vague understanding of or understand more now, which is that my mum's was called Sarah Badil. And I always knew her as Sarah Baddiel, But I did also know this other thing about her, which is that her real name, real is a complicated word there, was from it. And the reason for that was she never used that name I say she never used it. I'll come back to a caveat for that in a minute. That, that name is, after 1935 in Germany, following the Nuremberg laws, all German Jewish children uh, born after then, uh, their parents had to choose the name of their child from a government prescribed list. And all the names on that list were shit, right? <laughs> I mean, incredible. One of the, one of the names means slut, you know, there were names like that on, on the list. So From It was the best of a bad bunch, really. And that was my mum's name. Her name, her full name is From It, Sarah Badil. Sarah itself was also a prescribed name because all Jewish daughters had to be called Sarah or Rachel, all men, Moisha or I can't remember exactly what they are, but, you know, Jewishy y names. Um, and I talk in the show about um, how in my own sense of my mother's extraordinary, rather mental life, uh, it was perhaps at some subconscious level a way of, refusing the fact that she should be dead, that she should have had no life, uh, and that instead, within the confines of living where we are now, by the way, this is being recorded in a place called Dollis Hill in London, right? Just my, I grew up about 300 yards over there. My mum lived a slightly amazing life involving a, a long affair with a golfing memorabilia salesman or whatever. So within the confines of 1970s Dollis Hill, she lived her life to the full. And I think that's something to do with the fact that she nearly didn't have a life. So in terms of, sorry, I know this is a very long answer to your question, but the show is about truth. The show is about saying, actually, after people die, or indeed, in my dad's case, ha- have dementia, don't idealise them. Don't pretend that they were angels or whatever. The, the, the true act of memory is to describe them in all their idiosyncrasies and flaws and craziness. That's a pledged... I'm very obsessed with truth. I have a sort of almost... I think, on the spectrum, pathology, to need to be as honest as possible all the time. And therefore, and this is finally coming back to it, Holocaust denial represents a very extreme affront to the truth.
0: You're listening to Dan Snow's It's There's an old episode with David Badil. More after this. Hey, I'm Dan Wildman. by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best selling frame. That's A U R A Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So social media is a difficult place for you these days with Donald Trump and the, the, well, the discourse. it's, it's and-
1: difficult and it isn't difficult because I quite like fighting the lions, I mean, and fighting the trolls. My next show, I think, is going to be called How to Deal with Trolls uh, because I think, well, partly because I've built up an enormous amount of material through <laughs> insisting on fighting the trolls. Part of this pathology is that when people say things to me that aren't true or just you know, abusive, I can't ignore them. The, 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 early on, there was an internet... Law, for want of a better word, which is don't feed the trolls. You're just giving them attention. And whether or not that's a good thing, I can't do it. Uh, If I get slagged off or if someone says something to me which is racist or fascist or whatever it might be, I reflexively need to Mm. bring them to the light and then put them down. Um, I mean, for some extent, for me, that's to do with being a comedian. That's to do with they are hecklers, uh, in my opinion. And with a heckler, you don't ignore it. You repeat their heckle normally, and then you put them down, and then you get a laugh from the rest of the audience. And that's very effective, I think. And that's what I'm doing on Twitter when I'm retweeting a fascist or whatever, making fun of them, and then my half a million followers or whatever all enjoy that and join in. Can I ask about, yeah, let me ask about your show, which, remind me of the title. The show that I'm touring at the moment is called My Family, Not the Sitcom.
0: It struck me. I, mean, I want to talk to you about it because I'm very struck. My, my love of history, my interest in history comes from a kind of oral historic tradition of, of talking about members of my family. My, you know, my grandmother is this extraordinary Welsh sort of matriarchal figure and she'd tell tell about her childhood. And, and, and for me, history and the past was always people said, oh, it's, is it relevant to young people? I mean, it was always incredibly relevant because she made it clear that I only existed because mm. she'd been trapped on the other side of the Atlantic during, by the Battle of the Atlantic. And right. Therefore, she met a kind of jock called Robert McMillan, who then became my grandfather. So my whole being was only possible because of these events that had happened in my... The most important day of my life was my mum and dad met in a press conference in Ottawa before I was ever born, right? Okay. Because otherwise I wouldn't exist. Yeah. So it, your show is about history as well. But oh, in, no, your, it, is a,
1: it is definitely about... Well, it's about immediate family history. And actually... How far back do you go? Well, I go back as far as the Nuremberg Laws at one point, uh, but uh, it's really about the 1970s in those terms. That's Uh, history now, man. No, that is totally history. (laughs) No, but there is a social element to it, a social history element to it, because a lot of what it's about is about parenting in the 1970s, uh, because I think uh, that my parents... Didn't have the word parenting. You know, that's a modern word. Uh, and they parented in the way, in a quite an extreme version, the way that actually most parents did in the 1970s, which is completely not to stop their lives for their children to just carry on living. You know, we have children, that's just what you do. And now we carry on having affairs or, what in my dad's case, drinking and swearing, whatever. Uh, And there's no sense in which we're monitoring our children to make sure they're not damaged or whatever. And I kind of celebrate that, actually, in the show. I mean, in a complicated way where the damage is definitely acknowledged. But in general, it's a very feel-good show about that. But I also make it clear, because I talk about my own children, that there's been a sea change now. and, And that's the way that my parents... Parented, for want of a better word, is is very a historical thing.
0: Uh, I couldn't agree more. I am the most hands. I mean, I you know, I'm, I compared to previous generations of men in particular. I mean, I my whole life revolves around the kids. I mean, yeah. tomorrow I'm taking my daughter to Joe Jingles, then yeah. I'm taking my yeah. little boy to tennis. You know, whereas that's unimaginable, right? Your dad oh, no, the unimaginable. I mean, we, so, I mean, but then what's that mean? Jerry
1: what, Seinfeld does this joke in his most recent stand up set about how you know, kids now, they're, they're very, very looked after. When he was young, uh, he thought of, his parents thought of him uh, or their children uh, in general as like a raccoon in the sense of like there's one around here somewhere, but I don't really know where it is. And, and that's very true of me. I, mean, I was out and about in London, round here. Getting beaten up often, uh, or <laughs> occasionally approached by weird men on the tube, or whatever—all sorts of things that were dodgy. When I was ten or eleven, I was knocking mm. about doing that. Now, you know, that, I wouldn't let my kids do that. What does that and I mean? do uh, well. This isn't a psychology podcast, but I'm going to say something no. about a psychological, which is that um, part of my drive towards truth, which I do see as something like a, as a pathology to some extent, is that I have a rather relentless, no doubt wearisome, meanness in the sense that I. I've mentioned T.S. Eliot once already, so it seems pretentious to do so again. But I'm going to. T.S. Eliot says in the Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock that we all create a face to meet the faces that we meet. That's a misquote, but he essentially says that. And I think I don't actually. I think I am always me in every situation. I find being not me very, very uncomfortable. So I think that uh, I didn't. I haven't changed at all since I was quite young. Really, not in a very, not in a deep, visceral way. Except because I've had children. The only thing that has changed me in any kind of really powerful, my own psychological foundations, the way I see the world, my understanding of empathy, all that, is because I've had children. Uh, And that didn't so happen to my parents (laughs) at some level. My parents, who were both quite solipsistic characters, only children dedicated at some level to themselves and their own desires, that didn't really happen for them. I mean, not that they... I mean, I wasn't... I didn't have a terrible childhood. It wasn't deeply neglected. But there is no way in which I was uh, monitored for damage or for bad things or whatever in the way that uh, I, I, we, we do uh, to our children. So how are your kids going to be different
0: to you? How are our kids going to be different to us, given they're they getting more monitoring, Well, I don't, I
1: don't know. I don't know that it's necessarily a good thing. Oh, God. I mean, no, that's something I, I talk about is uh, certainly I think there's a certain amount of damage, in my case, and this is why the show is a sort of celebration of that, that is good for me. I mean I mean it's a very complicated. No, oh, independently, about as a
0: 10 11 year old probably gave you extraordinary independence and
1: well and also freedom of and also because my parents you know they didn't ever try and interfere with my life at some level. So by the age of 13 or 14 I'm quite a self-possessed you know know what I want sort of individual and actually, I think personally, some people have an idea of me who do know about me, probably, as they think, oh, you probably came from like a sort of bohemian, sort of upper-middle-class Jewish background. No, not at all. I came from this area. Uh, my dad was made redundant uh, when he was 42. He worked for Unilever. He had no money. He was unemployed for three or four years. Then he started selling dinky toys or whatever. I only went to haberdashers as a public school because we had no money and they had a means-tested direct grant system at the time. Um, so the point about damage, I think, is that and I think this is sli- sounds slightly glib, but both by my parents sort of letting me do what I want and living their lives in the way they did. There is undeniably that's why I'm a comedian is what I'm going to say. You know, I might have in a more straightforward family. I probably might have ended up in that Jewish cliche of, oh, he's an accountant or a dentist or whatever he is. Uh, so that's celebrated in my show and my general happiness with who I am. Is partly a result of the way that my parents bizarrely failed to parent me. Oh God, you know.
0: I hope our kids aren't going to be unhappy.
1: Well, you know, this is a whole other other thing we can get into, which is I don't think I don't think our kids are going to be unhappy. I'm suggesting in this conversation, I suppose, that they are slightly overprotected. Yeah, well, they certainly. And, and and you know, there's a sort of self-consciousness and maybe anxiety that might be created in them by our suggestion that we need to watch them all the time, or something yeah. terrible will happen. But of course, they have also, particularly this generation, a thing that we didn't have, which is they are under the cosh all the time of social media. And I think, you know, again, I don't want to say something unoriginal, but I, I know, and I have a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old, uh, and particularly with my girl, my daughter who's 16, there, there is a deep concern hmm. that this hierarchy, this sort of constant sense that you know, how you are doing socially with your peers or out there in a wider sense, blah, 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 and you can compare yourself and find yourself lacking... Whereas we grew up in a in a more nebulous thing like, like, and you could tell yourself you were doing fine socially because you didn't have like a way of I counting know, it. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know that this this very very powerful league stabilizing mm. of social life, I think, is dangerous. Well, I'm gonna
0: go home and lock my kids out of the house without their phones, make them yeah. survive for a bit. Um, can I just, let's let's finish just talking about um, what you know? You're a comedian, but you're also an activist in so many ways. Why? I'm not an activist. Well, you you're, ac- you're pretty act. Well, you take down trolls. You're, you're oh yeah. You're a, you're you're I a,
1: suppose in that sense, I'm an activist. You're a, what's the word? You're, yeah, you're a... But I think that's important. Sorry, Dan, but I, the reason I deny it is, I, I've noticed recently, because I'm on Twitter, that people uh, are asking me on political shows. Yeah. I was asked to do uh, Unspun with Matt Ford on it the other day. And he said, oh, do eight minutes of political material. I, I don't have any political material, really. And he, I, don't, I have no political agenda. I think of myself as no wing, not left wing or right wing. Uh, I think the truth is always complex. Uh, And if the truth, and I think that's the great fear, is complexity is the casualty of modern discourse more than anything else. Um, And if the truth is always complex, you shouldn't impose a political model on the way you think. Uh, So I think people assume that I'm left-wing, and I certainly was more left-wing when I was younger. I was briefly flirted with being a communist, Uh, but I think that was a sort of pose. But now I'm not. What I am is someone who likes commenting on things and saying stuff about things uh, and having, hopefully, insight or witty takes on things. And the thing that's happening all the time, and you're now able to comment on it all the time, is the news. And the news is primarily political. So the fact is, I do make lots of jokes about, say, Donald Trump and at the expense of Donald Trump. But it doesn't really come from an agenda of, even though I'd rather there was a Democrat in office, I possibly would. But at some level, I wouldn't for the material.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a rich time to be a well. I mean, it's it, that's part of the dark, the Faustian pact, isn't it? I mean, it's a good good time to be a comedian, is it
1: now? And, I think so. I mean, uh, I mean, it's a good time to be have a historical podcast because people are is. interested in, in history again. Yeah, well, one thing, one very good feature I think of social media is without being an activist, it, I, I do like the idea that people are engaged. I like the idea that people are thinking about what's happening and are not just seeing politics and turning it or seeing the news and turning off. Because even without an agenda, I think that engagement and think, people thinking about things is a good thing. Um,
0: it's tough, isn't it? Because in the 1990s, history had finished. Cold War was yeah. over. The 1930s felt indescribably distant, I think. Yeah. And now I think it feels, quite, it feels quite
1: alive. Well, that end of history thing, what's yeah. his name?
0: Fuki- um, Francis Fukuyama.
1: Yeah, that end of history thing that was a conviction and I think I probably, without having read the end of history, I think when I was growing up or getting into my 30s or whatever, I think I was probably smugly convinced. We we're in a general upward trajectory totally with agree. social progress. The Berlin Wall's come down, particularly. That's very important. And, you know, religion seems to be on a downward stride. You know, that no one believes those things anymore. That will never be important in global affairs again. Religion, you know, and it all felt like progress. And then that was all wrong. And there's lots of reasons why it's wrong, economic, geopolitical, but I do think technology is really important in it. No one saw that. No one saw that the rise of a technology that would mobilise extreme opinion would have incredible impact, I think, so quickly. So that essentially an internet troll is president of the United States. Oh God!
0: Okay. Well, there i will let you go. Let's make sure. Is we, that it? I think so. Yeah, we've. That's you know we've. Wow! I feel. I feel. I we've only just got started. I know. I don't want to. I don't want to. Sorry, David. We, no, we, no, we, uh, we could. We could just keep going all day. Well, we could keep going all day. I just. Um, I probably should ask you the boring question. I have to ask everybody, which is, well, what, where did that love of history come from?
1: Well, it's a really interesting question that because I don't think of myself as having straightforwardly a love of history because I think of myself in a slightly airy-fairy way as sort of an artist, I'm going to say. Use the word artist. And uh, when you you say that to me, I'm im immediately an 18-year-old doing my A-levels, which is English, History and Economics, and my primary subject was English. I mean, I was good at history, actually did all right in economics even though I hated the subject, but um, I did English at university. I I wasn't going to do... Traitor. History, No, but here's the thing. Not so much of a traitor, which you'll understand in a minute. Which is, So I go there, uh, Cambridge I went to, and then I went to a lecture by a brilliant woman who uh, then became a friend of mine later on, uh, called Lisa Jardine. Do you yes, know Lisa yeah, Jardine? Yeah. And one thing you'll know about Lisa Jardine, even though she taught English at uh, Cambridge, is that she was basically a historian. Mm-hmm. And I went to a lecture of hers on Spencer's The Fairy Queen, uh, which is, I can't recommend a <laughs> very dull read. But she said something in it. She said her basic belief in The Fairy Queen, which is about Elizabeth I, was that um, it's a big poem really about chastity. And her point was that poets and courtiers and people who wanted advancement and who were writing books at the time needed a way of framing the heroism of a female monarch different to the way they would have framed the heroism of previous monarchs or whatever. And the way they would have framed the heroism previously was valour. Valour is the thing, obviously, that most poets and writers would have, you know, championed and, and eulogized in the past. But when Elizabeth the First appears, they can't quite do that because she's not really a warrior. it's not she isn't really Bodus here anyway. And she herself put her virginity forward as, you know, that's the thing about me, that's my brand. You know, so suddenly you get a poem like the Fairy Queen, in which chastity is the heroic quality in that poem. So the important point is, whether that's right or wrong, is I'm listening, I think this is brilliant. This isn't just F.R. or oh, what can we make of this poem with our own heads? This is truth about this poem. It feels like truth. It feels like a way of thinking about literature and culture that has weight and ballast and, and truth. So I became a historicist at yes. that point. It's and all, and all, everything history. I wrote about literature whilst I was at Cambridge, it was always involved in some way. With history, I always wanted to put it in a historical context, and in fact, I wrote a dissertation about Jane Austen, which is called "Propriety and Property in Jane Austen," which in which I discovered that the words "propriety" and "property" until I think the mid nineteenth century were the same word.
0: No,
1: No, yeah, in Johnson's Dictionary, they are the same word, propriety and property. So the notion of propriety of the rightness of things, of goodness, of manners, whatever, is in the same root linguistically as property as ownership, and that that really explains something about why Jane Austen puts manners and the ownership of a house like Pemberley sort of together in her ideal of what you should be looking for in a, in a man or indeed in life. And anyway, I, I wrote this with a lot of other historical information about it. And then Tony Tanner, who at the time was the foremost uh, scholar of Jane Austen, nicked it all and put it all in his last book about Jane Austen, although he did credit me on the last page. And so I've got some of this from this student, David Baddiel. I remember he spelt my name wrong. Uh, but, <laughs> but that was all historical. And, and so, that, so for me, to answer your question... It, it's still about art, primarily at some level, but it's about how the production of art, how cultural production, which is a word used a lot of the time by people like thinkers like Louis Althusser or whatever, but cultural production is always about history. It's generated by historical context, and that's what I became interested in. But it strikes me there's lots of comedians who
0: are obsessed with history. I mean, not just because the lots of comedians I know now are middle aged blokes who love history, yeah. but but lots of you guys draw a lot of material from and are fascinated by the past.
1: Yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm not like Al Murray, if that's what you mean. <laughs> Al Murray properly likes history, military history in particular. And actually, I'm not like that. Um, I get a bit bored by maps that look a bit like the opening credits of Dad's Army. Do you know what I mean? By those big arrows and, oh, the Western Front was here. And I can't really follow it, actually. I've never been very good uh, understanding that, you know, the way that... I, I mean, I remember starting to read, in fact, um, who wrote Stalingrad? See yeah, so I, wrote his book, I read his book about Berlin. Mm. Yeah, oh, no, It's an amazing book, but it, the bits it's I missed out, depressing. the bits I always missed out, it's when Marshal Zhukov was going down the Eastern Front and then he, all his troops were stationed here. I can't get my head around that at all. I like people, really, and I guess, and art and whatever. I like to hear about them. And great movements of troops and whatever I find quite difficult. Um, but if there is an answer to your question, I don't know what it is. For me... It's because I am interested in people. I'm interested in how humanity interacts. I'm interested in how they create stuff. And as I say, from an early age, that became also about, well, what's the context in which that is done? And that's always history. You're a man of many interests. I should probably
0: ask you about the football
1: thing. Does that burn as bright now as it used to? Or well, do I like football? Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, I do like football. Whether England burns quite as bright oh, for me is, is probably not the case in the sense that I used to really look forward to England games. I used to really look forward to World Cups. European Championships, all the rest of it, uh, and now I—it's not as exciting. I, that but, isn't as exciting as it was.
0: I wrestle with that—is that age? Because obviously, when I was a kid, you know, it was the glory. It was ninety. It was ninety-six. Mm. Obviously, it was amazing how we didn't win that tournament. I have no idea. but I, is, is it? You know, I'm just a bit old now, and therefore, I'm not interested in England as a franchise. Or is it that there is less interest in England's franchise because it's been so rubbish now for the last? Yeah, I think couple it's a bit of, of, of big tournaments.
1: Yeah, I mean, England have been rubbish for a long time. I mean, three lions. The historical point of Three Lions, to some extent, was that we decided, me and Frank Skinner, to write a song which had never really been done before. Uh, even though there'd been many, many English songs have been triumphalist. they had been this time more than any other time back home. They're all about we're going to win it. And so when we sat down to write those lyrics, we thought, you know what? Let's embody the actual experience, which is we're not going to win, or we're very unlikely to win, but we sort of hope against hope, against rationality, that we will win. So let's write it about that, which is what Three Lions is. It's a kind of melancholy song about everyone saying we're shit but you know what never mind we might still do it that's that's the point of that song and I think that worked obviously it did work in 1996 but I think as time has gone on and we've lost to Iceland and stuff like that yeah. or just not made it in various other tournaments it's become more difficult to have that magic moment where you think like well ne- never mind we might still make it but I think also it's age and then one other thing which is simply that the league football now Premier League football. You know, when, when I was growing up, you never saw any great, you know, foreign players until you were in the World Cup. And then it was really exciting that England and English players were playing against these incredible people. Now you see them every yeah. week. And so I think there has been a concomitant lack of excitement about saying, you know, I mean, when England play Belgium, which will be exciting. I'm actually doing a gig that night in Stoke and we've put the, the opening time back to nine o'clock so that the audience and indeed me can watch England, Belgium. But... The two people that I'm interested in or worried about with that will be Eden Hazard and Kevin De Bruyne, who I do see, well, Eden Hazard I see every week because I still go and see Chelsea, and obviously Kevin De Bruyne I see on the telly. So it's not like the old days when you never saw Pele except at the World Cup, is my point. So it's slightly less exciting.
0: But the, 90s, the 80s 90s were full of... Your song was so resonant because they were full of all those just missed opportunities and, and penalty, you know, penalty shootouts in, in, to get into
1: sem- semi-finals. You know, we, that we were there and thereabouts. In, in- but we had a brilliant side, I mean, certainly in 1990 and in 1996. We had a very, very good side, yeah. actually, and we should have won. But then there's a larger thing, a historical question, or perhaps a psycho-historical question, which is I do think that the English psyche, especially in football, isn't quite suited to winning. But I think that when an Englishman goes up to take a penalty kick there's a sort of self-consciousness uh, and anxiety that comes into his head that isn't there for, obviously not for Germans, but for quite a lot of other nationalities. And that's to do, I think, with the weight of history. I'll give you an example. Shall we, shall we end this podcast with a brilliant example, I think, of history, uh, but in a context that perhaps isn't thought of as history. When England plays Spain in 1996 and we beat them, on penalties. But, on penalties, yeah. and you will remember, I'm sure, that Stuart Pearce scored a penalty. Yes. Now I was there, and it was absolutely amazing. But in my almost, in more importantly, now is something that happened when I away from the stadium, which was on telly. Barry Davis, the commentator, as Stuart Pearce approaches that, says his chance to erase the memory of Turin. And the reason he's saying that, for anyone who doesn't know, is that in 1990, in Turin, against Germany, Stuart Pearce had missed a penalty, and thus we hadn't got in to the 1990 World Cup. But here's the important point. What is Barry Davis doing with that turn of phrase? He's making it history. He doesn't say... Stuart Pearce's chance to get back and and make it okay that he missed that penalty in the semi-final a few years ago. He says his chance to erase the memory of Turin. That's like Anthony Beaver, isn't it? He's a historian. He's making history alive and real. And I can't say that without getting goose pimples. That's why I like history.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and it looked like Stuart Pearce was well aware of the weight of history. Well, that's the point. Yeah, that's
1: the point, is that, yeah... I mean, he scored in that moment. He went berserk. Yeah. And in going berserk, that's my point, is that like, there seems to be a greater weight. And, the, and on the occasions when it's sometimes released and we, you know, we score, it's so enormous that, like, oh, God, we've got through. we scored the penalty. But that conversely means that you know, it's very difficult to get to that point. Yeah. It's more difficult than it should be. I'm basically, I've never seen a German react like Stuart Pearce did after he scored the penalty against Spain. Because at some level, we are a very emotional nation, I think. Brilliant. I mean, we just could keep going for hours.
0: We? Uh, do we need to give any websites or anything? Uh,
1: well, look, shall I, can I just say, so you can yep. put it wherever you like, yep. uh, I am touring with this show. If you want to know more about my family and my family history, in fact, I'm doing the show, My Family, Not the Sitcom, on tour all over the UK. Details are on davidbadil.com, or you can follow me on Twitter uh, on atbadil, when I shall be certainly mentioning it from time to time. Lovely. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank it's you really very been, much, David Dill. been very enjoyable. I've
0: all been the history
1: upon
0: our I've been just a quick message at the end of this podcast. I've got a little tiny favour to ask. If you could go to wherever you get your podcasts, if you could give it a five-star rating, if you could share it, if you could give it a review, I really appreciate that. Then from the comfort of your own homes, you'll be doing me a massive favor then more people will listen to the podcast, we can do more and more ambitious things, and I can spend more of my time getting pummeled. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History It. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DAN SNOW at checkout.